0: Today is Wednesday. It's February 15th, 2023. It's 2.42 in the afternoon. And hi, this is Sean Williams. This is the Mincing Rascals podcast. Portions of this are broadcast on WGN Radio. In fact, an hour of this will be on WGN Saturday night at 8. So plan your weekend accordingly. Share the podcast with your friends,
1: please, and listen to me weekdays from 10 to 2. Hey, it's John with WGN Radio, WCIU-TV, and Block Club Chicago. I'm Austin Berg from the Illinois Policy
2: Institute, and you can listen to my podcast, America's Talking.
1: I'm Eric Zorn.
3: I write the Picayune Sentinel. It's a substack newsletter. and You can write to me, Zorn at gmail.com, and I'll add you to the list.
0: I was going to plug that you can, on today's The Last Day, to vote for the Chicago Reader Best Podcast, but that ended today at noon?
3: It ended at noon,
0: yeah. Oh, so I hope you voted, for, as a listener to this podcast, I hope you voted for us. We have not done a very good job. I have not done a good job. I haven't done a job at all of telling people, go to the reader thing and vote for us so we get a little acknowledgement as the best podcast in the city. But I don't like pining for votes that way either. It should happen naturally.
2: Feels icky to ask for it. I kind of think it does. I agree. Please rate and subscribe. (laughs)
0: <laughs> to your podcast
3: I'm just hoping that Brandon Pope wins best beard
1: That's am, that's the one I'm looking at I am not, you don't have to have a desk right next to him You'll <laughs> we'll, he never hear the end of I'm, it I, I haven't heard the end of it since he got nominated So,
0: <laughs> Well it's one of those things where if he doesn't win Then to hell with the whole thing I mean then it's all for naught. What's the point if that's not the best beard in this city Mayor Lightfoot said That county board member Brandon Johnson Is a false prophet promising things that can't be done or are not true. And at a debate earlier this month, candidate Paul Vallis turned on Johnson. He's a former teacher with the backing of the CTU, said shutting down the schools for 15 months had devastating consequences and we're going to be paying the price for the next generation and johnson turned and fired back he said we were trying to save lives and if saving lives from a 100-year pandemic is an inconvenience to you guess what paul you don't deserve to be mayor about that exchange ed mcclellan wrote in chicago magazine how'd you like to hear those two guys go at each other for an entire hour i would McClellan's story is headlined, a Vallis-Johnson runoff would be an epic six weeks. Those are two names we have not paired when we've talked about it. Austin, is that a
2: realistic possibility here? Definitely. And I think what you're seeing is knives out among the number two candidates. So uh, because Paul Vallis is seemingly the consensus frontrunner, Uh, you find instead of training their fire, instead of Lori Lightfoot and Chuy Garcia training their fire on Paul Vallis, you're seeing a lot of the candidates train their fire on each other. Uh, and I think that's an interesting dynamic that's emerged in the last week or so, um, as we've seen Vallis kind of top poll after poll. So that's going to be very, very interesting. You could, it would be hard to pick two candidates who are more at odds ideologically, um, Brandon Johnson, we actually just released on YouTube in full our feature-length documentary on the CTU this week. It's called Local One, The Rise of America's Most Powerful Teachers Union. And in that, you can kind of learn the story of how Brandon Johnson and the caucus that he is associated with, the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators, took over the CTU in 2010, uh, the consequences of that the militant radicalism of that union and how that's progressed over the last decade and its consequences on the city on families on students and on teachers so he certainly one of the takeaways from that film is that the old machine the madigan machine the burke machine is dead to the extent there are machine politics still alive and well in chicago and in illinois it comes from the chicago teachers union it's a 30 million dollar a year organization only 20% of that money goes to actually representing teachers. The rest of it goes to overhead and leadership and politics. Um, there are 25,000-ish members strong, so they can get out votes for people. Uh, they're a large block of voters, and they give a ton of money to politics.
0: But what does that say about Brandon Johnson per se? Maybe I don't love the
2: CTU. He seems like a good guy. The, the question is, when you're on the opposite side of a bargaining table with a union, who are you going to represent? Your uh, employer for the last ten years, or are you going to represent the that represents a very small minority uh, of the city of Chicago, or are you going to represent the best interests of the city and taxpayers? And okay. I think when he he has ninety seven percent of his money coming from CTU and its affiliates or the SEIU, so you have unions spending a ton of money to get their person on the other side of the bargaining table with them.
0: Well, I don't mean to be naive about this, but is it possible that Outside of that relationship, he could be a competent mayor, a fair, good, honest mayor. That
2: he, Does that automatically disqualify him, you think, Austin, from the job? CTU takes policy positions, so you can judge his track record. And their record is over the last 10 years that Core has been in charge of CTU, There's they've led four strikes over 10 years. So upended the lives of hundreds of thousands of students and families across the city test scores have declined precipitously. They declined 20 to 30%. Then there was a change in test score, a change in testing and declined another 20%. Right now you have 80% of kids in CPS not able to do, uh, not able to read at grade level. And I believe 85% are not able to to do math at grade level. You see uh, CPS is the in the worst financial shape of really any school district in the country. It's junk rated. And that is in large part due to ctu's extraordinary power and the leadership of ctu of which brandon johnson was a member so i i think that record matters as well
3: yeah i mean i I i'm curious to know whether ctu or its representatives or people from the american federation of teachers is going to have a response to this documentary which i watched and i i I found it I found that to be missing some key elements, which is sort of the cause and effect that we're talking about here. Yes, there's been this rise of this more radical members of the union, but then to, to, to automatically say, well, the reason is because this union is in charge and, th- and th- these are the problems. I'm not really in a position. I'm not an expert on education policy, but, but I do know that, that you, that the the cause and effect lake is not there for me, was not there for me in in watching this documentary. Uh, I urge people to watch it, make their own, make their own decision. And I would also urge if anyone represents teachers unions out there to see if they could offer some sort of a contrary position on this, because I, I would like to know more about the contours of the debate that's going on. And, and this, this is a, a fine presentation of one side of this debate. And Austin is a good spokesman for it. But but I would like to see more about about this debate. And the truth is that if Paul Vallis wins one of the two spots or if Brandon Johnson wins, we're going to have that debate right now. We've we've got a whole bunch of different debates going on. But if it's going to be Brandon Johnson versus Paul Vallis, this town for five weeks, I think it is between the two elections or is it five or six weeks between the two elections is we're going to have that debate. And it's going to be it's going to be really interesting to follow.
1: Well said. You know what's interesting is it's, uh, I I'm and this is probably the wrong thing to say. I'm way more interested in the horse race politics, um, the, the fun of it, and uh, it's probably because I moved to the suburbs. But I am really fascinated by people who are gravitating towards Brandon Johnson, not just because of his uh, ties to obviously the unions that are backing him, but I is this a matter? Do you think of people coalescing behind the rising candidate? the underdog candidate. Uh, the, obviously, Lightfoot and uh, names are known. Huey Garcia, name, a, a name that's well-known. I'm sure Brandon Johnson is a name that a lot of people knew, but maybe not your everyday Chicagoan before this election cycle, uh, if there's something exciting about him. And, and the reason I point to that is only because at, at Block Club, we've done these live one-on-one interviews with Laura Washington that we've also then translated into podcasts. And the Brandon Johnson ones, far and away, were the most watched the most commented on, the most listened to by like five or tenfold. People were way more interested, for whatever reason, in hearing what his interview had to say mm-hmm. than some of the more established candidates, including the mayor.
0: Do you think that's organic or is that orchestrated, John?
1: I It could be both, right? I mean, did he tweet it out more? Perhaps. Or did course, the union
0: but, just tell everybody, hey, let's load up on perhaps. the IPI thing?
1: Perhaps, but the fact that it went across, you know, all of our platforms in which we put it out, the articles in which we wrote about it. So yeah, you're right. He might have that apparatus in place that that gets people to it. But um, it, it's interesting. I mean, I still, I what I find fascinating is while everyone thinks that Paul Vallis is a, a, a check mark to get to the next round, and, and maybe he is the leading candidate to do that, we're less than two weeks away from this thing, and literally you could come up with ten or eleven different jumbles of two people and all of them have a plausible argument to be made. It's fascinating.
0: And this is the first time we've really put Brandon Johnson in that number two slot. I mean, seriously. It's been you just nodded your head
2: and maybe well i, th- I don't think he's necessarily that. in the number two slot i think he's in the conversation well among fair enough maybe absolutely absolutely
0: but i mean yeah. the first tier has been Chuy garcia paul vallas laurie lightfoot for a while that's been almost inseparable from or separated from the pack and then you have brandon johnson and willie wilson and i'm not sure who else is i, in there.
3: I think that's i think that would be the the trailing the, the trailing, trailing yeah. crews are, are would be would be would be wilson and uh uh and johnson at that point but i think that johnson has moved up to join the leading the leading pack if we're going to use the bike race uh analogy and i think the rest of them in the in the peloton are so far back i I don't i don't see like a cam buckner or an alderman king breaking through at this point or or jamal green i I just don't i don't see the the, none none of the polls and and we don't know how to how much to trust all the various polls but we do know some of the polls are independent But we also can tell the the fact that everyone is training their fire on brandon johnson that he must be breaking through that they must be seeing something in those polls that's really troubling to lightfoot lightfoot's got a problem in that seven of the candidates are african-american and the african-american vote is split and i know that some of the pastors on the west side are very upset that people like like cam buckner are not dropping out and they're not throwing their support to Lightfoot because they're afraid that there's not going to be an African-American in the mayor's office or even in the top two in the runoff because that vote in that community is going to be so fragmented and you saw you saw Jamal Green really going after Johnson in in the NBC5 forum you know know, basically calling him a phony and you saw Lightfoot calling him a false prophet and and so he must be just their internals must be telling them that Johnson is a real threat that he in his he is the most radical liberal far left most progressive candidate out there his his tax proposals and and austin will probably give us give us chapter and verse on why those tax proposals are too radical for chicago and probably not going to do what he thinks they're going to do but he is he is clearly the rising candidate here um i don't know what the what the polls are showing about uh, are there questions about vallis's residency breaking through uh Anything about his son and being involved in a police shooting, are those eroding his support?
0: Eric, let's just do a whip around on that. Residency Paul Vallis. Maybe he doesn't really live in Chicago, but he's had a residence there for 13 months. So yes, no. Does that matter? Is that a voting issue for you or should it be for yeah. anybody?
3: I'm not voting for Paul Vallis, but I uh, would not, not for that reason at all. It, it would make no difference to me as a voter.
0: How about you, John Hansen? Does it matter?
2: a little bit not that much i think it it matters that you live in the city but i think as soon as you say that it becomes a really funny exercise to define what does that mean right you know like do if how many days a year do you have to stay in the city of chicago to say yeah. you live here <laughs> where is your address you know like right so i think it gets into these weird details and it seems like you know uh, at least Val's campaign's response was, you know, he has a uh, uh, an ill mother who his wife stays with at a home in palace Heights, and he has an apartment in—is it in Bridgeport? I think. Yes, and, it's, it's uh, in Bridgeport. In Bridgeport, so I mean. Hey, if you have a Bridgeport residence, I think that gets you like halfway to the, to the mayorship <laughs> was, already. That, that's bona fide.
3: <laughs> it actually wouldn't. It wouldn't even bother me if we found out that he slept most nights in Payless Heights, because the guy's got a lot of connections to Chicago. He was a budget director in the city. He ran the schools for five years. He's he ran for mayor here. He's got Chicago roots. He cares about the city. Uh, I don't. I don't see obsessing over how long he's had this apartment and how many nights he stays there. I don't think we have the luxury of of obsessing about that right now with the kind of thing, the problems that the city faces. If he's, if you think he's the guy to run the city, then vote for him and don't worry about about where his uh, his razor blades are.
0: Is there such a thing as a moderate in this? I mean, if Brandon Johnson represents the uber liberal of the nine, and Paul Vallis is a more is maybe the most is the most conservative of the candidates, we always hate that. So who's the middle ground? Pam who's- Buckner. Cam I would say
3: I would say Buckner and and Chewy? maybe Sophia King. No, uh, no. Chewy's fairly Chewy's fairly fairly progressive. I, I just feel feel like Garcia's campaign. Has once again not really impressed me with its its energy, its specificity. Anything He's, he doesn't seem to be catching fire. I don't talk to anybody who's like oh, I'm really for. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who are, but not the people I talk to are, are are like excited about to vote for Chewy.
2: I think it depends on moderate compared to what. So like in the field, yeah, in the middle of that field, maybe it's like a Buckner or Sophie, Sophia King. But if you look nationally, there have been a lot of big blue cities that have elected sort of centrist mayors. And you think about a, I mean, even a Bloomberg, when he was first elected, very business-minded mayor of New York city. And Eric Adams is certainly, he says some things that are very progressive, but he's also, you know, very pro law enforcement and conservative in some ways. A Richard Rorden in uh, in Los Angeles, he was a sort of a centrist mayor. Um, that could be, Valls could be a, a, a move in that kind of direction for the city of Chicago. I think in terms of nationally, who is like a moderate I I think that strikes me as a vallis like candidate, maybe Lightfoot, depending on what part of her record you pick.
3: He's very, very almost Rounder-like. Bruce Rounder was a he was a socially liberal, uh, economically conservative Republican, and I, I think that's about where Vallis is. He's he is um, socially moderate. I know people say he's not he's not pro-choice enough, but he's he has been emphatic for a long time that as a matter of law he is pro-choice, uh, and yet he he strikes other other notes that are very republican and so i would agree with austin that he is in that mold of the kind of big city mayors that are getting elected and and he is he is red certainly fairly red by chicago standards but by national standards he's more purple
1: yeah i was going to say that uh, painting Vallas and, and showing these clips and some of these ads mentioning that he has supported Republicans or considered running as a Republican. I don't think it does the damage that maybe uh, some people think that it does to a campaign, certainly not to get into a runoff. That might be more of a general election tactic. I think it might actually help Paul Vallis get into a runoff uh, airing some of those ads. So maybe unintentionally getting him back into that number one or two spot. I
2: agree with that. I I think it's an odd tactic, but there's 15 to 20 percent of the vote in Chicago is – somewhat conservative so right. you're signaling to all of those people yeah they're actually you do have a guy in the race it's this guy i mean i i think that's a far stretch to call paul Wallace a republican but he uh I, I do think that helps him in some ways the one thing uh eric mentioned choice i think th- the most interesting thing about a johnson Vallis runoff would be on the issue of education so Vallis uh led one of the largest institutional changes in a public school system in the country in New Orleans after Katrina. And he brought about a a really innovative school choice program in that community. It's been written about and studied about a lot uh, and by most accounts has been highly successful in turning around outcomes in that school district, which faced a lot of the similar problems as Chicago Public Schools. And Paul Ballas is an unapologetic, huge supporter of school choice. Brandon Johnson could not be more opposed to that. The CTU cannot be more opposed to that. So uh, there's going to be several issues. Of safety, I think, response to violence will be one of them. But education, I think, is one where they could not be m- more far apart.
3: Well, I, I, but I think that that will be the case no matter what. If Valles is in the final two, because anyone who is in that next tier in that uh, in that other group of uh, potential number two finishers will be uh, will be opposed to school choice. Although maybe not as strongly as brandon johnson it'll be but it certainly will be that and crime will be the two issues that people will be talking about almost for sure if Alice is in the in the top two
0: i was very disappointed in brandon johnson's response to the axios let's get to know the candidates silly little survey that asked important questions like how would you fight crime but also said pro or con on dibs and i ranked the eight candidates from eight to one on whose response I like the best, and I like Brandon Johnson's the least. When asked pro or con on dibs, where you get to put lawn furniture in front of your shoveled-out street to save a parking spot when it snows, they asked him pro or con on dibs, and his answer was, quote, I have a driveway. That's not the kind of leadership where you stake." <laughs> I was inspired last week, Austin, when you said this is actually kind of good to see if somebody will take a position that they know is going to be unpopular, and either way, you're going to be unpopular, but don't dance around it. Stake out the ground. The only one that said con, that is, I am against the tradition of dibs in Chicago, was Roderick Sawyer. His answer was one word, con. Everybody else was kind of mealy-mouthed about it. My favorite, the one I ranked number one, was Sophia King, and her response was, I'm pro-dibs, It's Chicago, and anyone who has cleaned their car out from under the snow for hours understands the importance of being able to come back to that spot after a long day's work. I categorically disagree with her on all of that, but hey— Take you know own your spot, and then she says this, this is why I put her in number one. She said that being said, I would seek to implement a snow plowing system that would eliminate the need for it. Thank you I, everybody just throws up their hand and says, "Oh, it snows in Chicago and we all the cities do it, but we can't because because we're Chicago.
3: I, I, as I told you last week, I was very impressed with her refusal to, uh, to say that she believed in ghosts. <laughs> the, BEZ, the BEZ forum said, do you believe in ghosts? And she was the only one who said
0: no. These what, are what the topics I can get my head but
2: around. But it, it does sound like she believes in another fantasy, which is an idea that somehow you can get rid of the need to – Sh- out to shovel streets. out of your car, <laughs> right? exactly What are we talking How's that gonna about work? here? What are you talking
1: yeah, what about? What do you want everyone to park on their lawn for a week while they get the well, snow out? What well, are you talking well, about? I don't know. What's Other places system? do it.
0: Uh, I don't do know. They? Okay. Do they
1: really? Well, Yes, they do. For
0: instance, do you- just as a for instance, you could say, okay, even side of the street from uh, noon to two, you have to have your car out of the way after more than two inches of snow, and we're going to shovel it out. And then they come in and they shovel out the street, uh, right up to the curb, right up to the sidewalk. What's the problem with that?
1: Okay, okay, okay. Start Try and live in the Ukrainian village. East Humboldt Park, Lakeview, neighborhoods where every single spot on the street is used, and tell people that they're going to have to move their car to the other side of the street when a two inches of snowfall is coming. Okay, then make it it will happen. Make it, three it doesn't inches. matter.
0: John, there's nowhere to put the cars. Well, there Wait is. More. You drive, you get in your car and you go sit in Walgreens for
2: half an hour while <laughs> the plow comes through.
3: Just given the weather we're having, I'm not sure the dibs is gonna <laughs> That's
2: true. going to be a big campaign <laughs> issue. We're I was talking it. to, a, th- there is a guy I know who manages property in Chicago, and he said they budget for 12 shoveling every winter, really? and they have had one. I, absolutely. Had one.
0: And there is not one that's going to happen this, well, actually we're supposed to get some snow tomorrow, Thursday, February 16th, but otherwise, um, it's going to be in the 40s and 50s again. Uh, Nikki Haley says she's never lost an election, and she's not going to start now. She's an accountant by trade with a degree from Clemson, the first female governor of South Carolina, then the youngest governor in the country, daughter of Indian immigrants, previously endorsed Marco Rubio Rubio told Donald Trump she was going to run, and he said you should, which officially makes her the only other accountant besides Donald Trump running. Ron DeSantis is not officially in the race yet. She said people look at America and see vulnerability. The socialist left sees an opportunity to rewrite history. China and Russia are on the march they all think we can be bullied, kicked around. You should know this about me, she said. I don't put up with bullies, and when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. Her, I saw a chart that showed awareness, you know, of candidates, and Trump and DeSantis are way up there, and she was way down. John, what's your take on that? Is she a reasonable, viable, good candidate
1: for America? I don't know if she's a good candidate for America. I know she will not be a candidate for president. Uh, I'd be shocked if she would um, save the clip for later, but she's not very (laughs) actual favorable in the Republican Party. Those that know her right now, um, about 60 percent of Republicans say they have an opinion on Nikki Haley and only about 37 percent of Republicans find her favorable, find her net favorable. So that's an uphill climb. I think she's good for the Republican Party. She's only she's the first person woman of color to run (laughs) Uh, for the Republican ticket. That's good. Uh, she highlighted the story of her parents as Indian immigrants. I think that's really great for a party that And I don't want them to come at me here. I'm not saying the whole party is like this, but stats show that it is a party more resistant to having women of color in office and women in general leading um, or, or leading campaigns. So I think it's a good candidate for the, for the race. I think it'll be interesting, but I don't, find her to have uh, strong prospects of winning. Um, I have the stats here, by the way. 2019 Pew survey, only 33% of Republicans and Republican-leading independents believe there are too few women in politics. 79% of Democrats believe that. And 22% of Republicans say that men generally make better political leaders than women compared to just 4% of Democrats. So still, the vast majority of Republicans feel that um, women have a place in politics, but they definitely have a, a problem there. I'm rambling. I'll stop. No,
0: I think those statistics are interesting. She's one of those Trump administration officials, you know, U.N. secretary, that I thought was an adult in the room, right? So I was glad that she was... Part of the Trump team, I didn't think she was a sycophant. I didn't think she was a crazy. I had no problem with her place in, in a Republican administration.
3: Well, she's done a complete flip flop on Trump, which I don't know if that's going to be held against her or not. But you know, she was a, a, opposed to him, and then she was a sycophant when she was uh, an ambassador to the UN, and now she's going to now she's a rival of his. Um, and if it's just Nikki Haley against Trump, I, I continue to think that there is a strong. Uh, Desire in the Republican Party to get rid of Trump, but I don't think it's strong enough. And if you're going to have him running against DeSantis and Haley and Sununu and who else, uh, maybe Pence, these guys, everyone gets into the race, he's going to win the plurality of votes in a number of primaries, and he's going to then sweep the delegate field and get the nomination. I think that's one of the reasons why he is welcoming Nikki Haley into the race, why I think he's trying to goad DeSantis into the race by calling him names, uh, I think he knows that the more candidates run against him, the better his chances are of prevailing in these primaries. So uh, I, I agree with John Hansen, though, that that the uh, chances of her actually getting the nomination are pretty slim.
2: I would agree with that. And it, the her resume is great for a general election, Uh, And you can kind of toe this line saying, yeah, I was the adult in the room. I felt I needed to serve my country. I didn't agree with the president, but I served in this role in the primary. That's very easy to frame as, oh, well, you abandoned the president. You abandoned President Trump. You abandoned the make America great again movement. And she hasn't had to face really any kind of campaign against like a a negative campaign against her. Uh, So in that way, on a national stage. So I agree with what John said It is a good thing for the Republican Party that she is running. But it's going to be very hard for her to to walk, walk that line in the primary.
1: And I also point out that Donald Trump has already attacked her here this morning in terms of uh, that. She once said in an interview that uh, one of the reasons she ran for political office was because of inspiration from Hillary Clinton. So that has been pointed out. And in, in the most incredible flip of I could never picture this. The former Republican president is calling out Nikki Haley. For being open for entitlement reform, this is the 180 we've done on entitlement reform recently. That Donald Trump says that Nikki Haley isn't qualified because she was open to changing how Social Security works. We are in bizarro world, everybody.
0: <laughs> There's a video game playing out over our skies right now. We have shot, I think it's now four game, uh, four objects out of the sky. Uh, I don't know if they're all from China. I guess probably they are. I don't think we've picked up the remains of all of them. My colleague Lisa Dent saw somewhere that the estimate of how many objects might be floating over U.S. airspace that aren't U.S. could be in the hundreds. And so she's following the story. Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy's involved in whatever the Congress is finding out about it. And I said, I'm very curious about this, I'm not worried about this. I'm a little reminded of when after 9-11 we were all freaking out about white powder appearing everywhere, and most of the time it was flour or sugar. And almost always it was something benign like that. I feel that way about this. Uh, Find out what it is. I don't care if we shoot them all out of the sky. I don't care if they're Canadian. If they're over our space, I think have at it. And if they want to shoot our balloons out of the sky... They can shoot our balloons out of the sky, but I'm just not that worried about it. And then Lisa said something along the lines of, well, a balloon would be a great way to drop some sort of toxic substance or poison on the
1: population. And I'm not worried about that. I'm sort of where you are, right? I'm very curious. It's interesting. It's fascinating. And when when Lake Huron came into play, boy, that's not too far away from Chicago. That's interesting. Yeah,
0: wait till it's Naperville, and then I change my tune.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I I find it interesting. I I find the political uh, gamesmanship interesting after the fact, and I find the world... Uh, game of risk that is being played and is China testing us are we overreacting is the president purposely underreacting to not try and get an overreaction from China that I find interesting I'm curious about all of it but I don't think this moves the needle really anywhere in the relationship of some changing global force I don't think this is China now rearing its teeth for a war that's coming in a year but I'm kind of like you I don't I don't worry about a day-to-day I don't quite
3: understand what value they have uh, are, are getting out of these balloons that are hovering at, at such high altitudes. They can't get from satellites, and they all have satellites going around all the time. Uh, so it doesn't strike me as a particularly alarming incursion. And the other thing is that, that we you're talking about the ability to deliver weapons or deliver poison – Drones would be a, a, are a much scarier prospect than these balloons that are floating way up there. Uh, so I, I'm not, I'm with with John Williams and John Hanson. I'm not that worried about this. I think it's what we're seeing is a heightened awareness of things that that uh, we've been aware of for a long time. I think that our our defenses have been focused on fast moving objects, missiles, and so on, and not on these slow moving balloons. And if these slow-moving balloons were truly a threat, I think we would have we would have known that by now.
2: Wall Street Journal had actually an interesting story about that this week in terms of altitude. And something I had no idea about is the fact that most nations. I think this is sort of a you know table stakes for international diplomacy. You own the airspace up to sixty thousand feet above your country, <laughs> and above that, commercial airliners cannot fly. Um, and so then the other uh, litmus test is. Above three hundred thirty thousand feet, where satellites are, nobody has a claim of sovereignty. But there's that middle space between sixty thousand feet and three hundred thirty thousand feet, where kind of nobody has a norm about whose is who, who has control or who doesn't. So I think as you see, one, I think we're just going to see more and more examples of this. And if it's if it's a spy operation or not, I think you're going to find. Over the next few months, probably more and more and more instances of this. But there will have to be some kind of legislative or policy agreement on what is sovereign airspace above sixty thousand feet. and I, I didn't even know that was an open question, but this has kind of uh, uh, revealed it as one.
3: Is there any challenge to the idea that if something is up there at seventy thousand feet, we can shoot it down if we want to? Are we going to get are we going to violate some international norm if we do that?
2: We don't. It's not violating any anything, but it's also not abiding by any kind of rule. It seems like to me is what is kind of confusing. It's a real gray so, area.
3: So, so is this is this a actually written international law, or is it sort of like like the three mile limit off the coast, or is it is it uh, just like you say a norm or a convention that people just have agreed to?
2: There are a bunch of treaties that establish the fact that over three hundred and thirty thousand feet that is sovereign because all of these spacefaring nations were like, well, we don't wanna we we're in space, you guys don't worry about it. This is no man's land. We're gonna have satellites up here, right? So China and the US and Russia all all establish that. Um and then for sixty thousand feet, I have no idea. It seems like a norm, uh and a longstanding international norm that maybe hasn't been we
1: offered. are all huge nerds. This is the most boring panel for TV ever if you were to put us four on to react to this stuff. Everyone else is talking about what could be dropped from this guy. We're like, well, let's look at the treaties here. It's cool. Who, and,
2: what, I love It, it, it sounds I'm, I'm like so we could have a, a new a new society that's sixty-five thousand feet above everybody else. <laughs> yes, a if colony of goes.
0: people floating around out there with no rules, free sex, how, you know, whatever you what? want to do. Free I'm sex. Just,
3: I'm, I'm just thinking about you, this. How much are you paying? Things have taken quite a turn here.
0: John wanted <laughs> us to amp it up, and I'm thinking of this Shangri La of no rules between sixty and three
1: hundred thousand feet, where anything goes. Anything goes. I find it interesting. I guess what I'm saying is, is like, I like the nuanced conversation about this as opposed to what we see, uh, from the talking heads on TV or the people that want to score political points. These are one of those examples. And I felt this way under the Trump administration where the military like i don't I, I don't want to abundantly just trust your military and not ever challenge anything they do but i think there's a world we need to live in that you trust some of these institutions because it's the only way we can function as a as a as a functioning democracy is to trust certain things and one of the things i trust and i did it under president trump too was that military leaders Kind of know what they're doing when it comes to this stuff.
0: It reminds me a little bit of COVID where you say, okay, suddenly everybody became became an epidemiologist. We were all experts on viruses. And now everybody has air quotes informed, no pun intended on air quotes, informed Mm -hmm. opinions about uh, sovereign airspace and balloons and what we should be doing about them. We didn't even know there were any balloons up there. I'm with you, John. I defer to the administration of the military or whatever branch of our spy network says, here's how to handle something like this. Here's what we should do about it. And it is maybe the Chinese playing us. I mean, as much as this should be an argument about China and the United States. It's as much an argument between Democrats and Republicans, people pointing to the feckless administration and how we've got to get Joe Biden out there. This plays right into that hand.
3: How clean are our hands in all this? We we are acting shocked and aggrieved that spying is going on in our country. But don't we have if if there's this airspace that we could occupy, aren't we taking advantage of that around the world? I I hope so. I hope I come kind of but hope we were. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, I, and I don't know that we can that we can rush right to the fainting couch over this. We have to <laughs> we have to we have to deal with it. But I don't I don't know that there can be this this sense of like this has been a this is a violation. This is a terrible thing that's happening. We just have to protect ourselves from it.
0: Well, I welcome the Chinese to shoot ours out of the sky too, and unless we got Scott Powers cousin up there or something. I say if we've got a satellite. And it's a weather balloon or a thing with cameras, knock it out of the sky. Um, Not
3: powers, though. That's a deep cut there.
0: (laughs) Wow. I don't want them shooting our satellites. I mean, I don't want any more space to be floating around Earth someday going to run into the space station, so I worry about that. Uh, I don't want pollution in, the, in
2: space, but I, I'm okay if they rain it down on us here in the United States. One, one reason to not always trust national security experts actually relates to this story, and it's the fact that for years, uh, U.S. federal agencies were buying their drones from a company called DJI. Which is a Chinese company that is heavily influenced by the CCP. So we had federal programs paying for it, drones that have video footage that gets uploaded to the cloud. Really? To a company like owned by the CCP. So, you know, like someone wasn't minding the store on that probably <laughs> for a few years. So there was a big, uh, I think that might have been Wall Street Journal again, a big investigation into that. And now there is, you know, a moratorium on purchasing those things from a company like that. But that's much better data and much closer to the ground than these
0: balloons. Uh, By the way, guys, Jack Heinrich, who's producing the Mincing Rascals podcast today, just handed me this. The Chicago Bears have announced today that they have closed on a $197 million purchase of the shuttered 326-acre Arlington Park property, a milestone in the charter NFL franchise as long as sought city to suburbs relocation the bears cautioned that the land buy does not mean their vision for a five billion dollar redevelopment of the shuttered racetrack site highlighted by a domed stadium is a done deal
1: i think it'd be bigger news if they didn't close on it right if you have this agreement in place to buy something and it never closes that Uh, would be a development to me well Well,
2: that's what's happening with the casino i believe there's a very that's that's a been a, a really difficult thing Bally's trying to buy that from Alden Global Capital, which we've talked about before but yes i I agree John that
3: well, if this is a game of chicken with Chicago over the soldier over Soldier Field, it seems like the Bears have just thrown the steering wheel out the window. <laughs> <laughs> so- I, I mean, I think they're going. I think that they have seen these these mega stadiums, the where, where the Super Bowl was played in L and the uh, stadium in L A and places, and they're thinking we got We can't do that with our, with our little lakefront
1: Soldier Field. We have to go to a, a bigger complex. How does anyone and- watching that stuff not want that? Like, I don't really get. How people watching the Super Bowl and seeing how cool that stadium looks, despite its grass problems that actually reminded me of Soldier Field. Yeah, but yeah. how can someone not look at something like that and say, we don't want that here, right? And that's this is the only way you're going to get that. Well, I think people want it here. The question is, do you want it on
3: the lakefront or in the city of Chicago or do you want it in Arlington Heights? As, as someone who watch, who considers wherever the Bears play to be a giant TV studio, as I only watch the games on TV, yep. I don't care where they play. That's what uh, I say. I, I would, I would like it to be, uh, in, in as nice a stadium as possible. I, I'm not a big fan of, of games in bad weather, although I know that that, there was that really fun game at the beginning of the season where it was raining the whole time. And I think they're gone. I think that this is a, a real sign that they are dead serious about moving out there, and I think that the, the ball is rolling, and, uh, and, and Chicago really isn't going to be able to respond.
0: Well, if a justification for moving it is so you get the Super Bowl and Final Four events and other uses of that facility, but just think about the Super Bowl for a second. Did you find that that was a love letter to Arizona or Phoenix? I mean, I'm watching the game and the pregame and the run-up to it and all. I can't say I saw it all, but I I didn't see a let's get to know Phoenix kind of feature. They could play the game on Mars. It's still going to look like a stadium with a bunch of people and a halftime show.
3: Well, it's a, it's a it's a tourist draw too. You get a lot of people coming in, spending a lot of money in your hotels and restaurants and so on. Uh, that would be my guess. I I don't. It's not like a tourism bureau attraction video, right? It's it's just a it's a it's a venue like a convention that brings people into town.
0: Fair enough. Uh, one quick other sports note, guys. Pitchers and catchers report today. Uh, Major League Baseball has made permanent a pitch clock, no shifting, larger bases. I think that three inches will come to come into play not only uh, on each side of the bag. It'll go from fifteen to let's see, is it fifteen to eighteen? So it would be an inch and a half on the side. Anyway, as close as some of those bang bang plays are, I wonder if it'll actually increase the likelihood that bases will be more successfully stolen. To say nothing of the fact that they're limiting the number of times they can try and hold a runner. But anyway, so you have bases of a different size. You have no shifting. There'll be a runner on second in extra innings. Some of these rules I like. I love the idea of the pitch clock. 15 seconds between pitches, 20 if there is a runner on base. And the batters can step out for no more than 8 seconds. And they only get one timeout per plate appearance. Penalties will be a strike on the batter and balls uh, for the pitcher. Minor league games with these rules last year were shortened by almost half an hour.
1: In general, John, you like what they're doing, tweaking the game? Timing, yes. I hate the shift rules. And I don't even like the shift. I think it sucks and I think it ruins. It really makes the game... Ugh. But... I think that batters need to adjust to it. I don't like the the rules never used to tell you where you had to position players except for the pitcher. I don't think they should. You should be able to put those nine people wherever the heck you want them uh, to best play defense. So I don't like the shift rule, but everything else I'm okay with. I
2: agree on the shift. There's it's very, and it's totally at odds with the goal of shortening games, which is what I, the biggest thing I don't understand about it. Um, Like maybe it's more entertaining because there's more offense, but. I I would be curious, if they went out by half an hour with all those rule changes, what if they hadn't changed the shift rule? Yeah, I don't know.
0: Even, but I'm sorry, how does the shift impact the length of the game, necessarily? You have more, more offense, would, I would assume, if you can't shift. Ball's getting through the right side, say, yeah. for instance, Longer so. innings, yeah. Although you can bring an outfielder in. You can have three infielders between first and second base, but one of them has to be an outfielder. The infielders would have to be not only on either side of the bag, but they would, could not be on the outfield grass. And when the ball is thrown, they can't run over to the other side either.
3: I'm, I'm right with John Hanson. I don't like the shift, but I really hate the idea that you can't put the players where you want to. you got to realize that I'm sure that in the early days of baseball, the positioning of all the players, except the pitcher and the catcher, was based on sort of an organic look at the game and where the ball's being hit. And you know, we got to have someone here because balls are hit there. We need... Someone over here, and if you want to move them around, I, I, you should be able to have everybody on the infield if you want, or or put a put an extra outfielder out there. I, it, it seems to me like it's all about strategy. And just like in basketball, you can double team people. You could I, it, that that rule doesn't make any sense to me. I, I wanted to get clarification on the batter stepping out of the batter's box. They can do it once during an at-bat? Is that what you're saying, John?
0: Let me go back and read what I was writing from the MLB site. 15 seconds between pitches, the pitchers, uh, 20 seconds if there's a runner on base, and batters can step out for no more than eight seconds. They get one timeout per appearance, per plate appearance.
3: So, One timeout. You mean where you get to go and talk to the hold, third base coach? No, where you well, reach and no, you, you hold, hold it, up your hand.
0: You turn around and go to the umpire. You hold your hand up and go, hey, "Hey, hold on, hold on." Like the guy's just starting to go into the stretch, and you go, "Time out!" And they go, "Time out!"
3: I would totally disallow that. I would say once you step into the batter's box, you are in the batter's box until you're done. Okay, so no, no, timeouts, out but even one no is, timeouts.
0: But even one is a step in the right direction because guys were forever slowing the game in the box, right?
3: Oh, and, and stepping out, adjusting their batting gloves and all that nonsense. No, just once you're in the in the batter's box, you shouldn't be able to leave it. That that would
0: be kind of It's kind of going to be that way, it sounds like. Minor league games last year were shortened by almost half an hour. I don't like the shift restrictions either. I'm with you guys. But I do think it's intriguing that you could take an outfielder and position them.
1: Well, a, I think that's a because That happens in games naturally, right? In in the bottom of the 11th, if it's nobody out and a base is loaded, you always bring. I think they were trying to still allow those situations where you want to induce a ground ball where a fly ball was going to win the game anyway. So I think they wanted to allow for that.
0: It does make you think, though, that if Kyle Schwarber could just hit the other way, it's too bad, isn't it? Some guys will rip the ball, do everything they're supposed to do, and there's a guy standing 180 feet. In you know, shallow right or shallow left, and it's just a line drive to him or a ground ball to him. You know, it got through. Um, I guess they'll still be able to do that, but you think they'd be less inclined to do that now, too. Well,
3: think about it in basketball when they have guys who are bad free throw shooters, and they foul them at the end of the game to make them shoot free throws. The same thing. Kyle Schwarber can't can't hit the opposite field. We overload the shift, and then we play. It's his strength against our, you know, we play to his strength or his weakness. Right, and in that's, either, that's sports.
0: Yeah. And in either case, say, well, then learn the craft. Learn to hit the other way. Learn to make a free throw. That seems to be a fair challenge. One other note about sports rules. I think football needs to change some of the rules about possession of a catch. The football, if everybody watching, I don't know how they're going to do it, but they just go, let's ask America. And everybody will vote with the app and they go, it's a catch. I think they've made too many rules on
1: it, right? It's like it's I, I, too I, descriptive.
2: It, it was the you would have these like erudite philosophical debates for like fifteen minutes during the Super Bowl about what constitutes possession yeah. and the, the amount of steps. I thought it was it was really annoying, and I also and the, the end of that game also I like for all of this like we need to get all the officiating right. For the the game to end that way, and I texted every person in my life who told me they were annoyed that soccer ends in penalty kicks <laughs> during the World <laughs> Cup. Yeah. That we have the biggest, you know, the, the biggest game in the country, and it ends on uh, a call like that, and a scrawny white guy who has one job that's totally different than everybody else's job on the team, and that is gonna that's gonna be what decides the game. Um, yeah, I, yeah I, the the officiating and the the length of time it took to review stuff during the Super Bowl is very yeah. frustrating. L-
1: let me
3: propose a rule for you guys that. in the final minute of a football game, the clock stops on every whistle, whether it's a running play, out of bounds, inbounds, it just stops and every whistle so that a team can't just take a knee I and end the game too. like that. Yeah. And, yeah, and it would just be it would have been like, okay you you chiefs you got to even have to do something here you can't just kneel down and let the clock run out uh and if you just did that in the final minute maybe you could then adjust make the game the shorter by saying in the first 5 minutes of each quarter the clock uh runs cons- runs constantly something like that so that the game's still the same length but but i really don't like that at the end of the game that a team can just can just uh fall on the ball run and out, take the and, clock, yeah. out the clock yeah out the clock i i don't like it and and austin was right he didn't he didn't text me but i would have deserved it if i'd gotten a text <laughs> right about that cuz i feel that way about soccer as well
0: do you agree with this that the officials actually got it right it's the rules that are wrong. That, that that was what I was hearing also, that some of these receptions where then the fumble is recovered after the reception or the guy had the ball, took three steps, went out of bounds. They said he didn't possess the ball long enough in right. bounds. And that's just such a load of crap. But those well, are the rules that the NFL has created for the officials.
1: Right. I think it should just be the Potter-Stewart rule, where you know it when you see it, what a catch is, right? Right. I know. I know. Like, that's a catch. Okay, the nose of the football creeped out while he was going to the ground, out of bounds, but everyone watching, that was a catch. Just call it a catch. Austin, you got to exit
0: this silly little podcast, don't you? Just as we were getting going, too. What a shame, (laughs) because we're really getting into some good stuff here. Thank you, Austin Berg. Thank you. Okay. So See you guys. There he goes. Yeah, that was um, one point that gets lost in all of this, too, though, back to the Super Bowl, is that if they had not called that penalty, it would have been an incomplete pass. They still would have had a 30-something yard field goal. I mean, the outcome of the game is still probably the Chiefs win.
1: How much time was left when that happened? Was it a minute and a half still left? Uh, I think
0: was, I'm not exactly. I think it was
1: like it might have been less than a
0: minute. Jack, do you know oh, okay. off the top of your head? They, they would have had the ball back. And, right. and maybe 30 40 60 seconds which i don't know in the nfl sometimes crazy things can happen
3: and, and all they would have had to do is get in position for a field goal field too goal. i mean i i was I, w- w- as soon as that pass went way out of bounds i, I mean i thought that that was i mean they couldn't have, it couldn't have been pass interference because if it they couldn't have called that because that pass was not catchable that mahomes threw uh it was holding which is a different a different situation and then maybe the yeah. referee was saying well if they hadn't held him would the whole thing on call the holding call was 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 legit, but it didn't affect the play. I, I don't. I, I mean, I don't. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. Well, I mean, it just wasn't that bad. A hold.
0: I'm sorry. No, a hold no, no, is a hold.
3: A hold right. is a hold. But it, but it, it, I think that they should have. Yeah. They, I, I think <laughs> you keep the flag in your pocket on, on a play like that. You let them kick a field goal, and you and you let the Eagles have a minute to try to get in field goal range. Maybe you have an overtime Super Bowl and. I think it's a much more exciting way to finish the game than than this kneeling down for a minute and then kicking the field goal. It was very anticlimactic. It was a terrific game up until then, and the last minute stunk.
0: So the defender said, well, I held. And a lot of people are pointing to that as determinant, and I don't think it is, because his opinion is not the opinion that matters. If he had said, I didn't hold, would it therefore not be a hold? It's different when he, in fact, says, yes, I committed the crime. But there's so much contact that is allowed. Maybe the official could have looked at what happened and said, "Um, in fact, what you did, I do not believe was holding i don't think that that was a hold and then his opinion would have been wrong so i'm not i was not entirely persuaded that that was the
1: end-all position on that play these things happen so fast in these games i there's so many billions of dollars at stake too i am just amazed that these officials still want to do these jobs (laughs) yeah right i mean like that's a that's a subjective call maybe that's why there are so many rules about catches or non-catches because at least it takes it out of a, the subjectivity of the referees to have to make that call you mean uh, where they go look at the instant replay right because obviously holding this subjective pass interference is subjective although i think you can challenge that or someone can challenge pass interference now but like these subjective calls man i mean they they, they matter they make billions of dollars swing in one direction or the other and i I I, I pity and, and or I feel bad for the refs who got to do it. Well, the easiest well,
0: I, one to fix is a reception. <laughs> if to the naked eye in real time it looks like a catch, and then you see in replay from thirty different angles that while he always possessed the ball, it was moving along his body
1: while he did it. Give the well, man a a catch for crying out loud! And I know I said this earlier and agreed with you, but think about it, John. If they, if that's what the, that's what we did with the defensive holding call. You know, you looked at it from thirty different angles, and all those things. You said, "Oh, maybe not. Maybe so." And now we're all talking about it like it was the ref's fault. They would do the same thing with the reception or not, because you'd look at it from all those angles. You say, "Well, that ball did touch the ground." Maybe I've changed my tune here because now that they have all these rules set up, it at least gives the referee some cover. Like, hey, that ball touched the ground. I don't know where I stand on this anymore. We better end before I, we better end before I think Nikki Haley's going to become president. So. Yeah. Let's move on to golf. So
0: I
3: think the rules...
1: All right, that's all. The time
3: I, I got. I got. I got suggestions to change rules of every sport. Wants <laughs> I know to you do. Me, I, I'm, I'm always like I'm always improving the game. So.
0: Erica specializes in making a mountain out of a molehill, where everybody is going along just fine. Eric says, "No, wait a minute. What was the thing that you had in your Picayune Sentinel that that was an example of recently?" Eric, oh, was it the movie theater thing? Although that actually is a good fight about whether or not you should have a kind of price gradient based on where the seat is in the movie theater. That's theaters. a good idea.
1: Uh, you like that idea, John? Yeah, I don't see why not. We do that everywhere else with every other thing. Why are movies so sacrilegious that you, you would chart that it's bad to charge more for the middle seat or something like that? I think that makes total sense.
3: Sacrilegious? You mean sacrosanct?
1: Sacrosanct? Sac- yeah, that's exactly what I mean.
3: Thank you. <laughs> sacrilegious is free sex in outer space that uh, John Williams wants. John Hansen, Eric Zorn, Austin
0: Berg, Jack Heinrich is producing the podcast this week, along with Ben Anderson. Pete Zimmerman is off. I'm John Williams, and we'll drop another podcast on you next week.
1: That was fun, guys. That was good. (laughs) Glad I could join again. Yes, I'm, I'm really glad. I'm, I'm really glad too. It took a vacation week to be able to jump on.
3: Yeah, really? Are yeah. you off
1: this week entirely? All your assignments? I'm off from TV, radio. Your money matters is with Hawks. We only had Monday, Thursday, so Mary was cool with me just doing it from up here. And so. No home games. You're not out on the uh, ice. No home games for this week, and it was just a nice chance to get away.
3: Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com.